Justice Sotomayor delivered the opinion of the court, in which Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Thomas, Alito, Kagan, Kavanaugh, Barrett, and Jackson joined. Justice Gorsuch filed an opinion concurring in the judgment. There is no dispute that petitioner David Fox Dubin overbilled Medicaid for psychological testing. The question is whether, in defrauding Medicaid, he also committed aggravated identity theft, triggering a mandatory two-year prison sentence. The Fifth Circuit found that he did, based on a reading of the statute that covers defendants who fraudulently inflate the price of a service or good they actually provided. On that sweeping reading, as long as a billing or payment method employs another person's name or other identifying information, that is enough. A lawyer who rounds up her hours from 2.9 to 3 and bills her client electronically has committed aggravated identity theft. The same is true of a waiter who serves flank steak but charges for filet mignon using an electronic payment method. The text and context of the statute do not support such a boundless interpretation. Instead, Section 1028A-A1 is violated when the defendant's misuse of another person's means of identification is at the crux of what makes the underlying offense criminal, rather than merely an ancillary feature of a billing method. Here, the crux of the petitioner's overbilling was inflating the value of services actually provided, while the patient's means of identification was an ancillary part of the Medicaid billing process. Part 1. David Dubin helped his father manage a psychological services company. This company submitted a claim for reimbursement to Medicaid for psychological testing by a licensed psychologist. In fact, however, the claim overstated the qualifications of the employee who actually performed the testing and who was only a licensed psychological associate. This falsehood inflated the amount of reimbursement. Petitioner also changed the date on which the examination occurred. Even with the inflation, the total reimbursement was only $338. Petitioner was accordingly charged with health care fraud, a federal offense under 18 U.S.C. Section 1347. According to the government, however, Petitioner's conduct also constituted aggravated identity theft under Section 1028A-A1. Section 1028A-A1 applies when a defendant, during and in relation to any predicate offense, knowingly transfers, possesses, or uses, without lawful authority, a means of identification of another person. The predicate offenses include, among many others, health care fraud. Section 1028AA1 carries a severe penalty, a mandatory minimum sentence of two years in prison in addition to the punishment for the predicate offense. 
According to the government, this is a clear aggravated identity theft case. The government argued at trial that Section 1028AA1 was automatically satisfied because petitioner's fraudulent billing included the patient's Medicaid reimbursement number, a means of identification. The district court was less sure. This doesn't seem to be an aggravated identity theft case, the court explained, as the whole crux of this case is how petitioner was billing. This overbilling was criminal, but it wasn't aggravated identity theft. Nevertheless, the district court denied petitioner's post-trial challenge to his aggravated identity theft conviction, explaining that contrary Fifth Circuit precedent tied its hands. The court said that it hoped it would get reversed. On appeal, a Fifth Circuit panel affirmed. On rehearing on Bonk, a fractured court affirmed again. Five judges who agreed with the government nonetheless acknowledged that under the government's reading of Section 1028AA1, the elements of the offense are not captured or even fairly described by the words identity theft. Eight dissenting judges agreed on this point. This type of prosecution is not uncommon. The government has, by its own admission, wielded Section 1028A-A1 well beyond ordinary understandings of identity theft. One prosecution targeted a defendant who made a counterfeit handgun permit for another person using that person's real name and at that person's request. Another involved unlicensed doctors who violated the law by issuing prescriptions that their actual patients would then fill at pharmacies. There was also a prosecution involving an ambulance service inflating its reimbursement rates by mischaracterizing the nature of the transports, saying that the patients had required stretchers when they had not. Yet another prosecution involved a defendant who provided massage services to patients to treat their pain, but improperly billed this as a Medicare-eligible physical therapy service. Many lower courts have responded to such prosecutions with more restrained readings of the aggravated identity theft statute. The Fifth Circuit did not. To resolve the conflict in the courts below, this court granted certiorari and now vacates the judgment of the Fifth Circuit and remands. Part 2 Section A This case turns on two of Section 1028AA1's elements. Of the various possible ways to violate Section 1028AA1, Petitioner was convicted for using a patient's means of identification in relation to health care fraud. The parties offer competing readings of these two elements. The government reads the terms broadly and in isolation. On the government's view, a defendant uses a means of identification in relation to a predicate offense if the use of that means of identification facilitates or furthers the predicate offense in some way, 
as to uses, the government seems just to mean employs in any sense. Section 1028AA1 would thus apply automatically any time a name or other means of identification happens to be part of the payment or billing method used in the commission of a long list of predicate offenses. In other words, virtually all of the time. Petitioner, in response, offers a more targeted reading. For petitioner, using a means of identification in relation to a predicate offense requires a genuine nexus to the predicate offense. On this reading, the means of identification is at the crux of what makes the predicate offense criminal, rather than merely an ancillary feature of a payment method. When the underlying crime involves fraud or deceit, as many of Section 1028A's predicates do, this entails using a means of identification specifically in a fraudulent or deceitful manner. To illustrate, Petitioner borrows a heuristic from the Sixth Circuit. The relevant language in Section 1028AA1 covers misrepresenting who received a certain service, but not fraudulent claims regarding how or when a service was performed. In other words, fraud going to identity, not misrepresentation about services actually provided. Take an ambulance service that actually transported patients but inflated the number of miles driven. The crux of this fraud was how services were rendered. The patients' names were part of the billing process, but ancillary to what made the conduct fraudulent. In contrast, take the pharmacist who swipes information from the pharmacy's files and uses it to open a bank account in a patient's name. That misuse of the means of identification would be integral to what made the conduct fraudulent, because misrepresentation about who was involved was at the crux of the fraud. In deciding between the parties' readings, one limited and one near limitless, precedent and prudence require a careful examination of Section 1028AA1's text and structure while uses and in relation to are in isolation indeterminate, the statutory context taken as a whole points to a narrower reading. Section B. In interpreting the scope of uses and in relation to, the court begins with those terms themselves. Both terms have been singled out by this court as particularly sensitive to context, and they do not, standing alone, conclusively resolve this case. Start with uses. As the court has observed more than once, the word use imposes some interpretational difficulties because of the different meanings attributable to it. The ordinary or natural meaning of Use is variously defined as to convert to one's service, to employ, to avail oneself of, and to carry out a purpose or action by means of. These various definitions of use imply action 
and implementation. Beyond that general concept, however, use takes on different meanings depending on context, and because it draws meaning from its context, we will look not only to the word itself, but also to the statute and the surrounding scheme to determine the meaning Congress intended. For example, the federal arson statute only applies to buildings used in commerce or commerce-affecting activity. In that statutory context, the court distinguished between uses of a building as the locus of any commercial undertaking and non-covered, passive, passing, or ancillary uses of a building as collateral to obtain and secure a mortgage or to obtain an insurance policy. It is statutory context, therefore, that determines what kind of active employment or conversion to one's service triggers Section 1028A-A1's harsh penalty. In relation to is similarly context-sensitive. If relate to were taken to extend to the furthest stretch of its indeterminacy, then for all practical purposes, there would be no limits, as really, universally, relations stop nowhere. This language thus cannot be considered in isolation, and the court must go beyond the unhelpful text and the frustrating difficulty of defining this key term and look to statutory context. That the phrase refers to a relationship or nexus of some kind is clear. Yet the kind of relationship required, its nature and strength, will be informed by context. The presence of two such context-dependent terms renders Section 1028AA1 doubly attuned to its surroundings. The parties' competing readings both fall within the range of meanings of uses and in relation to taken alone. Resort to context is thus especially necessary here. Section C. Having found the key terms use and in relation to indeterminate, the next step is to look to their surrounding words. After all, a statute's meaning does not always turn solely on the broadest imaginable definitions of its component words. Instead, linguistic and statutory context also matter. Even in cases where the literal language of the statute is neutral in isolation, reading the whole phrase can point to a more targeted reading. Such is the case here. Section 1028A-A1's title and terms both point to a narrower reading, one centered around the ordinary understanding of identity theft. This cuts against the government's broad reading, which the government admits bears little relationship to the common understanding of identity theft. In contrast, a more targeted reading accurately captures the ordinary understanding of identity theft, where misuse of a means of identification is at the crux of the criminality. 
One, start at the top with the words Congress chose for Section 1028A's title, Aggravated Identity Theft. This court has long considered that the title of a statute and the heading of a section are tools available for the resolution of a doubt about the meaning of a statute. A title will not, of course, override the plain words of a statute. Yet here, the key terms are so elastic that they must be construed in light of the terms surrounding them. And the title Congress chose is among those terms. Even the government acknowledged that if the terms in Section 1028A-A1 are unclear, the title is a useful clue. Two additional points bolster this approach. First, the title here is not serving the unenviable role of pithily summarizing a list of complicated and prolific provisions. Section 1028A is a focused, standalone provision. Second, a title is especially valuable where it reinforces what the text's nouns and verbs independently suggest. As explained below, Section 1028AA1's text independently suggests a focus on identity theft. Indeed, this court has already once used Section 1028A's title and place in the statutory scheme to shed light on its text. In Flores v. Figueroa v. United States, 2009, this court pointed out that a neighboring provision, Section 1028, carries the broad title, Fraud and Related Activity in Connection with Identification Documents, Authentication Features, and Information. Section 1028A, in contrast, is far more targeted, using the words identity theft. That Congress separated the identity fraud crime from the identity theft crime in Section 1028A suggests that Section 1028A is focused on identity theft specifically, rather than all fraud involving means of identification. Given that, it is abundantly clear why the government urges the court to ignore the title. The government's broad reading, covering any time another person's means of identification is employed in a way that facilitates a crime, bears little resemblance to any ordinary meaning of identity theft. Consider again an unlicensed doctor who fills out a prescription actually requested by a patient. No one would call that identity theft. Even judges below, who agreed with the government's reading of Section 1028AA1 and ultimately the government itself, acknowledged that its reading of Section 1028AA1 does not fairly capture the ordinary meaning of identity theft, nor is the difference just around the edges. The government's reading would, in practice, place garden-variety overbilling at the core of Section 1028A. Instead, identity theft has a focused meaning. One dictionary defines identity theft 
as the fraudulent appropriation and use of another person's identifying data or documents as a credit card. Another similarly offers the unlawful taking and use of another person's identifying information for fraudulent purposes, specifically a crime in which someone steals personal information about and belonging to another, such as a bank account number or driver's license number, and uses the information to deceive others. This supports a reading of in relation to, where use of the means of identification is at the crux of the underlying criminality. These definitions refer to offenses built around what the defendant does with the means of identification in particular. In other words, the means of identification specifically is a key mover in the criminality. This central role played by the means of identification, which serves to designate a specific person's identity, explains why we say that the identity itself has been stolen. This helps explain why the examples resulting from the government's theory do not sound like identity theft. If a lawyer rounds up her hours from 2.9 to 3 and bills her client using his name, the name itself is not specifically a source of fraud. It only plays an ancillary role in the billing process. The same is true for the waiter who substitutes one cut of meat for another. We might say that the filet mignon's identity was stolen, perhaps, but not the diner's. This understanding of identity theft also supports a more targeted definition of uses. The word use appears in these definitions with a specific meaning. Identity theft encompasses when a defendant uses the information to deceive others. In other words, identity theft is committed when a defendant uses the means of identification itself to defraud or deceive. This tracks with the Sixth Circuit's heuristic. When a means of identification is used deceptively, this deception goes to who is involved, rather than just how or when services were provided. Use of the means of identification would therefore be at the locus of the criminal undertaking, rather than merely passive, passing, or ancillary employment in a crime. On top of that, Section 1028A's title is not just identity theft, but aggravated identity theft. Typically, an aggravated offense is one made worse or more serious by circumstances such as violence, the presence of a deadly weapon, or the intent to commit another crime. We've come to the end of part one of this opinion, but don't worry, next episode we will pick up right where this episode left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.